Recorded by The Way in Brea. Lead pastor Von Jarrett has a heart for the people at The Way and a desire to reach the lost. The Way's production department prays this message is a blessing to you and that you find yourself closer to God through application. of our filthiness and, and uh, disease. I'm reminded of the scripture with the leper where uh, he came to Jesus and said, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Somebody say amen. Yeah. And uh, Jesus didn't just say, I'm willing and made him clean. He reached out and touched him first. And uh, you know, obviously we know what's going on with, with this coronavirus to a certain degree. Hopefully we're getting our news from the, from the news and from the professionals and not just social media. Um, but I just want to—I just want to say, in the in the spirit of of following Jesus' lead, again, it's it's so important to see all of you guys here, um, and uh, to reach out and touch each other, and to reach out and seek the Lord. But I think also we have to also remember just to be wise. Say, somebody say amen. amen. Right? Uh, I'm glad that we prayed for our doctors. I'm glad that we prayed for our nation. I'm glad that we prayed for the CDC and the World Health Organization. You know. It's, it's funny how uh, sometimes we can complain about our taxes and complain about things, but now all of a sudden you need these people. You're like, man, they better be doing their job. <laughs> Ready to pay those taxes, you know? I think that's how it is a lot of times with the Lord where uh, when we don't really see the need and we don't see the value and we don't feel like we're getting a lot from the Lord, it's easy to, to, to devalue him. Uh, but then when you find yourself in a situation where he's the only answer, all of a sudden you've got all these prayers, you've got all this hope and all this, you're looking to him for answers. And I think in many ways, God is just trying to wake us up to, uh, to the world that we live in. You know, many of us never thought that, uh, that we would see a, a day like this. You know, we only see the stuff in the movies, country shutting down, grocery store shutting down, everything off the shelf, uh, toilet paper. You can't find toilet paper. Uh, but God's just trying to awaken us, I think. Um, and also, I believe that God is, is reminding us that uh, the world needs the church. You know? The world needs Jesus, and we are the church. Jesus' Jesus's body, he says, we are the body. He's the head. We're the body. So he needs us to stand out. We talk about this year after year, service after service, month after month, how we should look different in the world, right? That there should be something different about how we struggle, something different about how we do our finances, something different about uh, what we do in tragedy. There should always be something different about us. And if there's ever been a time for the church to stand out, I think it's now. Right? If there's ever been a time for, for people to be able to look and say, why are they have this peace that surpasses understanding? What is it about them that, that they're not ignorant, they know the risks and they know the challenges that are out there, but they seem to, uh, to have a peace. They seem to have hope. They seem to have something that I want when this, when this runs it co its course, um, uh, what we have, people will still be lacking. And I hope that when this runs its course, they're open and we're ready to be able to tell them what was it that we had before the scare yes, that we still have and how can we offer it to them, amen? Amen. 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 
All right. So when we pray, Lord, we thank you for again uh, being able to gather. We thank you again for uh, the people that you've positioned and put in place, Lord, leadership, authority, Lord, governments, um, doctors and nurses. Lord, we thank you that, uh, <clears throat> that you have this holistic plan for the whole world and for every life and for every family, Lord, and every community, Lord, where uh, we're not all called to be pastors. We're not all called to be worship leaders. We're not all called to have full-time ministry, Lord God, that you have specific calls in so many different areas, Lord, in every career, Lord, in every family, Lord God. We thank you that the doctors are not sitting somewhere uh, to be pastors and that they can be there right now when they're needed, Lord God. We thank you, Lord, that the nurses didn't feel a call to just be in the church and be working in the children's church, Lord, but that they're out there prepared and strengthened and ready, Lord, for those who are coming in and need particular care, Lord God. We thank you that you can see so much further than we can see, Lord. We ask you this morning that it would be no different. We are going to get into your word. We are going to lift you up. We are going to seek you, Lord. Our expectation is that you would reveal yourself, Lord God. Your plans have not changed. You are not surprised by what we're going through, Lord God. You have been taking us on a walk. You have been taking us on a journey. And we're just so grateful today that we get to take one more step with you in that direction, Lord God. We pray for all of your communities, Lord, the small ones and the large ones, Lord God, the gatherings that are meeting online today instead of in person, Lord, that it wouldn't be a lack, Lord, but that you would infuse those meetings with something special and something unique, that those groups of believers, Lord, would be able to see you in a way that they have not seen you yet before, Lord, that it wouldn't be just a reason not to be in church and to be in the comfort of their homes, Lord God, but that there would be a longing to be physically united, Lord, just like they're spiritually united, Lord, but that you would just move uh, through those uh, internet connections, Lord, that you would move through those videos that are taking place right now, Lord God. Uh, we just believe. We believe that you are without bounds, Lord. We believe that you are capable and confident, Lord, that you're ready uh, to meet your people, Lord. We love you this morning. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 All right. So archetype, week 11. Uh, the original pattern or model of things uh, of the same type are representations or copies of. It's been a long series, but I hope for you guys it's been a good series. Has it been good? Yes. Yeah? Amen. Like this half of the room thinks it's good. This half is kind of uncertain right now. Has it been good? Yes. All right. Amen. Good. Well, then we'll keep going. If it's, if it's not, we'll, we'll shift. Uh, the archetype is most commonly used to mean perfect example of something, right? So Jesus, we have seen time and time again, is the perfect example. He is the archetype. He's all these things wrapped up into one. He's the, the ultimate level of each of these areas that we've looked at. Um, and we've gone through all but the last two. The last one um, that we have not seen is the ruler. As we've gone through week after week, we saw the caregiver, right? Isn't it, isn't it interesting right now how many people need care, right? What a timely series to start with the caregiver. You know, uh, Miss Vanessa prayed over the elderly and we prayed over the kids. And I think it's funny how we send our kids off to school every week as good parents and we say, go get an education. <laughs> go out there and be taken care of for eight, nine, 10 hours, right? And our parents, right? We just like, hey, you're gonna be fine. You're older. The Bible talks about this, that people that let their parents get old and they don't care for them, right? Uh, but they, they say that's because they're, they're serving the Lord and they want to use their resources and their time to serve the Lord instead of taking care of their parents. And here we are in a situation where the elderly need, need to extensively be cared for and protected, managed, monitored, um, kept healthy, right? And our kids, many of us are going crazy. What are we going to do? They're home for at least three weeks. 
I don't know any math. <laughs> God is just reminding us like, hey, it's a blessing that you have schools. And if they're taken from you, what would you do then, right? When we're talking bad about teachers and talking bad about faculty and talking bad about principals. Now all of a sudden we're like, man, we miss you guys. <laughs> But Jesus is the archetype of the caregiver, right? He gives ultimate care and he never passes the buck. He doesn't put it on teachers. He doesn't put it on nursing homes. He takes all that responsibility for us, right? He says, I'm going to provide care. We saw Jesus as the rebel in week two, rebelled against whatever society was saying. Many of you have that spirit of rebellion this morning as you came out to church, right? Uh, same thing, right? He, uh, he rebelled against things that were ungodly, even if they were practiced and proclaimed to be godly, right? Um, I'm reminded right now of, in our society, um, we call love a whole bunch of different things, right? But Jesus would rebel against that and say, this is the definition of love, right? Our world wants us to believe that anybody who has strong feelings for one another is in love. And Jesus would rebel against that and say, that's not love, not the way that I designed it, not the way that I created it. So I'm not just going to follow suit so that I can be seen as a loving person in this world. No, I'm not going to do that. I'll rebel against that because I want to honor my father. We saw him as the creator, makes all things, creates all things, uh, speaks them into existence. Uh, one of the things I love about Jesus as a creator is his ability just to speak things into existence. He says, go your way, your servant is healed. I said it, so let it be done. He says, let there be light and there's light, right? When he says you're set free, you're set free. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed, right? He's a creator. He makes things uh, that don't exist to exist, right? The magician, we saw that he's a miracle worker. Things that uh, others will use smoke and mirrors to, to make you believe and to uh, play mind tricks and eye tricks on you. Jesus isn't that way. He truly does miracles, right? He truly is able to suspend reality and suspend nature because he's the creator of nature and he's the creator of reality, right? And he'll do that on our behalf. The orphan, uh, the fatherless, uh, last night, we were with a, a few friends uh, celebrating a friend of mine's 40th birthday, and one of my, one of my best friends uh, from college, he's a substitute teacher, and I don't know how that's possible. The last place I would want is any of my kids to be in his class, but we were cracking up because he was talking about this bad kid, and his name is Vaughn, <laughs> in his class. And uh, we were just talking about all the things that, that this kid has going on. And then at the end, a couple people started to ask questions. Well, what's his family life like? And he says, oh, his mom and dad are gone. Uh, he's raised by his grandmother and his aunt. And then he was like, the grandmother is only 40 years old. And it's like, dang, you know what I mean? Like, you're going through all these things, right? And then this idea of the orphan, right? Like, this kid is not just bad for the sake of being bad. He's fatherless. He's motherless. He's a widow. This kid is already on this track um, of all these things that he's going to struggle with. But man, I'm praying. I hope that this kid finds Jesus. Right? I hope that he finds a father in heaven. I hope that he doesn't remain an orphan, uh, that God would continue to send him examples here, but also reveal himself. And then Jesus says, look, uh, that kid's going to be able to identify with me because I was an orphan. Right? Whenever, that, whenever that light does shine, he'll have somebody that he can, he can identify with. The explorer, going from here, going to there, uh, taking his good news, taking his love to people that uh, uh, um, weren't able to hear it or weren't really valued, whether they be Samaritans, uh, whether they be from the, the Decapolis, the 10 cities, right, sinful cities, Jesus would take uh, his good news and his love to them and open the eyes of the believers to their value. You know, one thing that's going around right now is where did this virus start? And you can see the racism in people rising up, right? Isn't it interesting 
how we call ourselves Christians, but as soon as we're scared or as soon as something bad happens, that, that spirit and that seed of evil is so visible, right? Do we, do we care about the people who are suffering or are we trying to point blame, right? right. You see this racism, this spirit of racism uh, come to a head. Uh, even in our own nation, we've seen over the last few years how the spirit of racism has been kind of like bubbling up to the surface and now we get an opportunity to take that global, you know? So uh, I think it's interesting how Jesus would say uh, he combated that with going to, to other cultures. He combated that with sharing love and, and giving value to those that the, the society had devalued. Amen. Then we saw him as the lover, right? And what love means, how he loves us, uh, how he'll chase us down, how he'll leave the 99, how we're no longer slaves. This love that Jesus has for us surpasses the love of a woman when it comes to a man and a woman, surpasses the love of a husband. He becomes your husband, uh, surpasses the love of the best of friends that you've ever had. It's a, it's a different kind of love. Uh, with Jesus never having a wife, never having children, how can he know love and how can he know intimacy? It must be something beyond where we classify typically what love means, right? right? How can he be the archetype of the lover and never experience love in the number one way that we associate love? It means that we need to reconfigure or reconsider what love is. Amen? Uh, the jester and the joker, he's just funny. He just has a way of, of doing things and dealing with things and saying things that are hilarious, uh, and I'm glad that he has a sense of humor so that we can laugh when we're struggling, you know? Is, isn't it funny how uh, even in the, the, the worst of our trials and, and tribulations, you'll find yourself still finding a reason to smile, still find a reason to laugh. I've been to, uh, what is it now, three funerals in the last month of, of family members and friends, and at every single one, somebody says something or somebody tells a story and everybody starts busting up and starts cracking up because there's still this joy inside of us. There's still this desire for joy. Last night, it was 12.30 midnight, we were visiting somebody in the hospital um, that uh, is on life support and they're gonna be um, uh, pulled off of life support at six o'clock tonight. And uh, so pray for that family, pray for them. Uh, the, the reports are all negative, but we, we believe that God can do a miracle. And if he doesn't do a miracle, we're gonna worship him anyway. Um, but it's just the world that we live in, right? Where there's tragedy, but somehow there's still joy, right? Even last night when we were with that family, we're still laughing about, you know, random things. The, the food that we were eating and, and uh, the, the wife hadn't eaten anything. <laughs> so we brought some chicken nuggets and, and the guy that had the chicken nuggets told the wife, you know, hey, take, take the small one at least and eat it. And she reached in and grabbed the biggest one and he was like, hey man, that's the biggest one, that's not the small one. And it's like, man, her husband is on life support and we're cracking jokes about the big chicken nugget. Uh, but God makes room for that, right? You would think that we would have to be like, oh Lord, don't, don't talk about chicken nuggets in the hospital. But, you know, God made us, God made us fully rounded uh, people. The last couple, we looked at the sage, the wise man, right? And how uh, Jesus had uh, or has this immense wisdom for every situation, for every circumstance, always knowing the right thing, always being a step ahead of us, always leading us and guiding us, and how God would try to place people around us in our lives, uh, not only God himself, but people around us that would be wise, that would have wisdom, that would help us to get understanding, um, help us to get further down that road with the Lord, that that's his plan, that's his desire, uh, through discipleship, through love, through relationship, through uh, wisdom. And then last week, uh, 
We weren't here, but I had the blessing, thanks for the recording, to look at Jesus, the hero. How many of you enjoyed that last week? Amen. 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 I did too. I was, I was taking notes. I was listening. So, so thank you, Gary, for that. This idea that, that uh, Jesus is the hero. He's the archetype of the hero, and he's a different kind of hero than we've ever seen before. He's not just the hero that is the fireman that runs in and grabs everybody and says, I'm going to save you and get you out. Jesus is the hero that comes into the fire and says, let's just stay in the fire, but we'll be together. Right? That's not the hero we're used to. Jesus is the hero that comes to the woman at the well and says, I'm going to be your hero, but I'm going to tell you all this stuff about yourself and put your business out there. And then he's the same hero that goes to the woman that's caught in adultery and says, I'm not going to put your business out there. I'm just going to cover you right now. Right? So he, he saves and he's a hero in a way that's just unique. It's not the way that we would always want to be saved. It's not the way that we would do it. And he doesn't let us put, us put him in a box and say, this is how he's everybody's hero. He's unique. There's no other hero like him. That's why he's the archetype. That's why he's above and beyond. So uh, um, Mr. Gary back there, man, thank you for that word. Thank you for that encouragement. Um, uh, and thank you for opening my eyes to, uh, to looking for the hero in, in different ways when he comes into my life. Right? So that was good, man. I appreciate that. So this morning, that leaves us with one of our last two. We're going to look at Jesus, the archetype of the innocent. The innocent. So what does it mean to be innocent? Think about it for just a second. Don't say anything, but, but if you hear the word innocent, you hear he's innocent, she's innocent, the archetype of the innocent, what in your mind does it mean to be innocent? Right? When I think of innocence, I think of purity, I think of youthfulness, uh, and I think of childhood, right? I was up here and we were trying to have this moment. We're going to pray and we're going to face different directions and God is going to move and we're going to lift up his name and we're hearing his name. And then I look at this little girl and I'm like, she is so beautiful. It like, it, it just took my attention. Who, who's the little girl? She's like, she's the smallest one up here. Does anybody know who I'm talking about? Delilah. Delilah. Oh my goodness. You guys, whoo. When, when Naomi gets married and I remove her secret service security, I'm going to send her to you guys for Delilah. Goodness gracious. And then she looked at me and she waved at me and it's like, that's purity, that's innocence, that's young, that's youthfulness, that's childhood. It's like, there's nothing wrong with her. And her parents are like, wait till you see her at home. <laughs> but that's what we think, right? Like, man, youthfulness, innocence. For me, I often think about Nate. Uh, just this week, we were going to a dinner on Wednesday night. And uh, so we told, Mary told all the kids, go put your pajamas on. We're going to drop you off at your cousin's house so that we can go to dinner. Nate's 12 years old. He's almost a teenager. He's in the youth group. And he comes running down the stairs, and he's got these 1980s pajamas on, long pants that are tight to his skin, a long sleeve shirt tight to his skin. It's like 1980s Star Wars on it. And it's like, man, you're almost a teenager. When I was your age, there would be no way I'd walk out of the house like that. <laughs> But he's so young and he's so innocent and he's so pure that I was going to say something. I'm like, man, don't mess this up. I'll let him, let him be young. Let him be innocent. Let him be pure, right? He always, he always reminds me of what it means to be innocent, what it means to be pure. And uh, the, the kid has this um, naivety, right? So he's naive in many ways, or that's what I would say as, as his parent. Uh, and he has this innocence that it's actually weird to witness when I see things like that, when I hear him say certain things. It's kind of weird for me um, because that childhood and that purity and that innocence are so far removed from me. You know what I mean? 
where I've been in life, where I am now in life, when I see something like that, it's like, how is that possible? You know? But it's not that, that he's not innocent, it's, the, it's that I'm not innocent, <laughs> that I'm not pure, that I've had too many experiences, I've seen too many things, been involved in, in too many things in life. Right? So here's the definition, if you look it up, for innocent. It says, a pure, guileless, or naive person. Right? I thought, isn't that wonderful? I was thinking how naive uh, that Nate can be. But that's the definition that you get when you look it up. And guileless, you know, uh, it means honest, without, um, without lying, without deceit. That's why uh, when Nathaniel was called, uh, Jesus said to him, there's an Israelite in whom there's no guile. What he's saying is that he's an honest person, right? He's not trying to deceive anybody. He tells it like it is. That's part of the definition for innocent, pure, guileless, or naive. The second part says a person involved by chance in a situation, especially a victim of a crime or a victim of war. So maybe some of you thought about that, the innocent gets killed in a drive-by shooting, right? The innocent is by chance. They just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. They're in the theater, and they come in, and they shoot up the theater. They're in the church, and they come, and they shoot up the church, right? This person is innocent because they just happened to be there by chance. They didn't deserve what happened to them, right? Here's what I think, though. I don't think we really have a clear concept of innocence, because we live in a world that operates on degrees of guilt. We don't really know anybody who's actually innocent. We just know people who are less guilty than others. So how can we have this idea of the archetype of innocence if, if in my opinion, we don't really know anybody innocent? Deuteronomy 7, 17, excuse me, verse 8 says, if a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge, between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and go to the place which your Lord God chooses. And you should come to the priest, the Levites, to judge there in those days and inquire of them. They shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. You shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which the Lord chooses, and you should be careful to do according to all that they order you. This scripture is about degrees of guilt, right? It's not whether or not they're guilty or innocent. It's, hey, we don't know how guilty person A is or how guilty person B is. So if you have a struggle determining how you're going to judge this situation, go to the church, go to the Levites, go to the priest. They're going to give you direction on what the sentence should be, and then you just carry out that sentence. Interesting. We're not talking about innocence at all. We're talking about how guilty are these people and what judgment should they receive. Anyone in any one particular situation can be not guilty, right, Um, as they've been accused. But even if they're not guilty in that situation, they're definitely guilty at the very same time in some other situation. Does that make sense? Like you could, you could come, you can be accused by a friend, you can be accused by a family member, you can be accused by your spouse, P- kids can be accused by their parents, and they could be not guilty of what they're accused for, but at the very same moment, they're guilty of something. This happens all the time in relationships, where maybe my wife might say to me, you did this, and I'm very upset with you, and I'm like, I didn't do that. If you had said this, though, <laughs> I did do that. 
if you had said this, I did that too. But we will fight to the death about the area that we're not guilty in, knowing that we're extremely guilty in so many other areas. How do you operate in a world like that as husbands and wives, parents and kids, friends and family, workers and coworkers, right? Your boss says you did this. You're like, I didn't do that. I did a whole bunch of other stuff, but I didn't do that. <laughs> How do we really evaluate innocence, guys, if we're constantly guilty of something? Let's take a minute and look at guilt and hopefully that'll help us better understand what it means for Jesus to truly be the archetype of innocence. This is Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. It says, When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe, I plucked out some of the hair of my head and my beard, and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God, of the God of Israel, assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garments and my robe, I fell down on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, oh, my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our, say our. Say our. our. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, to humiliation as it is this day. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in the holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves. Yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the land, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to the other with their impurity." Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of that land, and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since, you're, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. And you have given us such deliverance as this. Should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us 
so that there would be no more remnant or survivor. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. That's Ezra chapter 9. It's verses 1 through 15. The story is about guilt. The story is about shame. The story is about conviction and how it leads us to repent. The people come to Ezra and they say, listen, we've been uh, sold into bondage. We've been sold back into slavery. Why? Because we came into this land that God prepared for us. He told us what to do when we got here. We didn't listen. And not only did we, the people, not listen, but our leaders weren't listening. Right? The governors, the priests, the Levites, the ones who were supposed to lead us, they were doing the very thing God told us not to do and that we've all fallen victim. So Ezra begins to cry out. Ezra begins to pray. Ezra begins to tell God about his guilt and the guilt of all the people. And what does it lead them to do? They, they begin to thank God. I can't believe you even left some of us alive. Yeah. I can't believe you left a remnant. I can't believe you left a peg in the, in the temple for us to be able to grab a hold of. I can't believe that you rebuild the walls for us, that you, that you started this revival for us because we are truly so guilty. I think the story is profound because at its core, it's about living in the promised land and doing that according to God's direction for entering into the promised land, right? Not mixing the holy with the unholy. God says, listen, um, I'm going to take you to a place. It's, it's promised to you. It's for you. When you get there, you've got to live in this particular way. Be prepared before you go into that place that it's not going to be easy. There's going to be unholiness everywhere, every direction that you turn. But do not mix what is holy with what is unholy, right? The reason I think that's so profound is that, that it's not just with marriage, it's with every area of sin, right? So you can apply this to anything I'm involved in, anything you're involved in. It's, the idea is that God has given us a promise that we're supposed to live in and that we're supposed to walk in and we're supposed to experience. And all he says is it's not going to be easy to do that. Just don't mix the holy with the unholy. Yeah. Right? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Don't bring in what you left behind in Egypt into the promised land. And when you get into the promised land, as you're fighting for victory in that place, don't fall victim to compromise, right? Don't fall victim to compromise and living in that land as the people before you lived in that land with the same mentality, with the same desires, with the same lust. So this idea of guilt, last week, Gary told us that this sinful nature and this propensity to keep needing a hero is because of the human condition. He says, listen, we, we, we are going to find ourselves just like these people did. He took them out of Egypt, sent them to the promised land. And what happens when they're in the promised land? They need to get saved again. Why? Because their nature is one that is going to constantly need a hero. Why do you need a hero? Because you have found yourself in a place that is bigger than you, that you cannot save yourself from. So you call out for a hero and they show up wearing that police uniform. They show up wearing that fireman's uniform. They show up as Jesus and says, we're going to save you out of this situation. Right? Isn't it interesting, though, how many people do you think that have been saved from, let's say, let's say saved from a fire. The fireman comes out and get them. Do you think that that person, most of those people, never need to be saved in any other way ever again? Or do you think that maybe later on their marriage is in danger? Maybe later on they have a financial situation they need to be saved from. Maybe later on they're out of work and they need to be saved from unemployment, right? It's, it's this temporary salvation, but their condition as a man or woman means that they're going to need to be saved again. Yeah. We keep finding ourselves in that place. It's the same thing here, right? 
They are, they're saved out of Egypt, and now they need to be saved again. Guilt and shame, conviction, is what leads us to repentance. We turn to God, and we say, save us. You took me out of Egypt, and I get that, and here I am in the same situation again. I'm guilty. I, I know that I'm guilty. So God, can you help me? Can you save me? Can you get me out of this thing one more time? What are we looking for? We're looking for this lawyer to get us off of the hook, right? We turn to God and we say, we know we broke the law, but please save us. Get us off the hook. Do something for us. When we actually do turn to God, we begin to see more than just a lawyer, right? Joel 3.21 says, God says this, I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed whom I had not acquitted for the Lord dwells in Zion. I'll acquit them. You know what it means to be acquitted? It has this connotation that you've been found not guilty, but not really not guilty. You've just been acquitted. People may know that you're guilty. It's kind of like O.J. Simpson. He had the dream team, right? He was acquitted, because if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. But think about this for a second. Being acquitted does not mean you're not guilty. It just means you've been found not guilty. The glove didn't fit. They must acquit. They acquitted O.J. Simpson. But where is he now? He's in jail. Why? Because there's something about guilt. There's something about the human condition that you're going to need to be saved again. If you're guilty, you're guilty. It doesn't matter what the human court says. We have a higher court that says, you're guilty. You think you got away with something, but you haven't really gotten away with anything. And even if you get away for your whole life here on earth, there are people who committed heinous crimes and were never caught for those things. And they die one day. They did not get away with it. The human condition, true guilt, is something significantly different, right? You and I, we've been acquitted But when it came to our lawyer, this hero of ours, this King Jesus, we find that he's not only defending us, he's not only pleading special circumstances for for our particular case, but he's able to defend us in this this unique way that no other person can defend, right? Mary and I have been watching a a show uh, about murder and, and, and so on and so forth, and this kid murdered a bunch of people on a bus, and his lawyer began to defend him on special circumstances. They began to bring up his childhood, how he was abused sexually and in other ways, physically abused, and how his parents had abandoned him. And they go through all these special circumstances that, that basically say, we want you to acquit him. We want you to let him off of the hook because, you know, he, he's really been through a whole lot himself. He can't really be accountable for, for what he did. So we begin to look at Jesus and we say, okay, he's, he's defending us. He knows the law. He's there on our behalf. He's also pleading special circumstances. Like nobody understands how you got to be how you are. Nobody understands how I got to be how I am. But Jesus understands. That's something that when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, you're like, man, he's, he's defending me. But man, he knows my story. He knows how I got to be like this. He knows I didn't want to be like this. He knows that I wish I had a different life. He's defending us on these special circumstances. But then he's doing something else when it comes to our guilt that's unique. He's not the Holy Trinity dream team. He's not pretending as if we're not guilty like OJ's lawyers were, right? I almost called them liars, like OJ's (laughs) lawyers were, right? Imagine they're defending him, but they know he's guilty. How many of you have been there? You're defending yourself, but you know you're guilty. 
You're defending your friends. You're defending your family. You're defending whoever it is, but you know you're guilty. Jesus ain't like that. He ain't just defending you as if you're not guilty, right? He's clear about our guilt, but he's also able to defend us in some never-before-seen ways. The archetype here. This is John chapter 8, verse 7, a story that you guys heard last week um, about a woman caught in adultery. John chapter 8, 7 says, So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Caught her in adultery, brought him before Jesus. She's guilty, she's guilty, she's guilty. He ignores them, they won't stop. He stands up, he says, Who, whoever one of you, he was without sin, cast the first stone at her. And we know the story, right? One by one, they get up and they leave. They can't cast this, this stone at her, right? This woman's hero, she was caught in adultery, but he got her acquitted, <laughs> right? He got her acquitted. But the question is whether or not she came to see him for who he really is. Is he just a lawyer that was able to have this, this, uh, this law in his back pocket and put it out there and now she's acquitted? Nobody can condemn her because they all have sin too. And, and she's like, thank you, dream team. And then she goes on with her business. I don't think that's how Jesus wanted her to see him. It says this in the same chapter, verse 10. Jesus raised himself up. He saw no one but the woman. And he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So there's a sense here that Jesus is saying that, listen, they were unable to condemn you. Why? Because they had sinned. But the way that he's talking to her, I don't know if you guys can see it, but I just, I've really felt it as I've been preparing to share this with you guys. When he says to her, neither do I, it's not the same. I don't condemn you because I too have sin and I can't cast the first stone. What he's actually saying is, see, the difference is I could condemn you because I'm without sin, but yet I don't. Think about that for a second. He says, I can judge you. I can condemn you. I could cast stones because I am perfect and holy and without sin, yet I choose not to. What he wants to see, what he wants her to see him as is not just her lawyer who is getting her acquitted. He wants her to see him as the innocent one. The one who's holy, the one who's without blemish and what that means for her when she's on trial. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. In the whole grand scheme, those are some of the most important words in the Bible. It's the theme that runs through the whole Bible, is that he was without sin. That's what changes everything. That's what makes him innocent, and that's what makes everything in the story of salvation, the gospel of God, possible. Is that he was yet without sin. He could throw the first stone. He has the right to be judge, jury, and executioner, right? He has that right because he's without sin. He could judge and condemn because he's more than a lawyer, right? Who him, him himself, himself has done wrong things and committed his life. But lawyers are, are, and thank God for lawyers, don't take this the wrong way, but lawyers are people who have done wrong 
and continue to do wrong. And they defend people who have done wrong and continue to do wrong, right? And they try to get people off. Sometimes the people are incident, in, innocent and they try to get them off. Sometimes the people are guilty and they try to get them off. But they do that from a place of, I too have been guilty and found innocent. Or I too have been innocent and proved innocent. That's, that's this relationship between a lawyer and their clients. Jesus doesn't do it that way. Jesus is actually good. He's actually holy. And he's actually innocent. Luke 18, 19 says, So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. Right? This is the story of the rich young ruler. I think you guys heard about that last week, too. Comes up to Jesus and says, Good teacher! Right? Uh, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus starts off with this question, Why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that's God. And then he goes into this well, you got to keep the commandments. He says, I've been keeping the commandments. Well, then sell everything that you've got and follow me. He says, I can't do all that. You're asking too much of me. Jesus recognizes that this rich young ruler still feels guilt and shame and conviction, and he knows that it's going to keep him out of heaven. Think about that for a second. He comes to Jesus, and he's keeping the commandments. He's a good man. He's been rewarded for his faithfulness, and he has resources, but he knows that there's still guilt, and there's still shame, and he comes, and he says, something's not right, Jesus, good teacher, something's not right. I feel like I'm not going to go to heaven, even though I'm doing everything right. Guilt, shame, and conviction leads us to repentance. He asks, Jesus asks him, I think, the most important question of the conversation, why do you call me good? We probably skip over that all the time, right? We want to know, well, what's important here? Jesus says, you got to keep the commandments. He says, all right, I'm keeping the commandments. Well, then you got to sell everything. You're bound by your resources. you got to give that stuff up and follow me. But even that, none of that is the most important stuff. The most important thing is Jesus says, why do you call me good? He's dealing with this, this issue of innocence. Do you know what good is? Do you know what holy is? Do you know what righteous is? And why are you saying that about me? Do you have a real understanding of this concept. Amen. It's not a question about the law and are you able to keep it? Jesus can have him acquitted, right? Why even tell him keep the commandments? Even if you don't, I can have you acquitted. I know everything about the law. I know all the loopholes. Why does he ask him about his riches? It's not about the riches. He says, I don't need what you have. I'm rich beyond your wildest imagination. Yeah. It's not about your resource, not about your finances. Says what matters most here is, why do you call me good? Do you understand innocence? Do you know what my innocence, my goodness means for your eternity? Because that's the question you came to ask me is, how do I inherit eternal life? You need to understand my innocence is the only way for you to have eternal life. Romans 2.4 says this, do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? See, acquittal leads us to great joy, but seeing the goodness and innocence of our substitute is what leads us to true repentance and salvation. Amen. Right? If you've been acquitted, you're excited. I was, I was guilty, or I was kind of guilty, or I was even innocent and, and wrongfully accused. I've been acquitted. I'm so excited. I'm so happy. That's great. Anytime you get off the hook, no matter if you're a kid or if you're an adult, you love it. I watch my kids when they do something wrong. The, the, the best joy, the greatest joy that they have is not when um, they're found innocent, like they really didn't do something wrong. When they're guilty 
And I'm like, you know what? This time, I'm not going to punish you. <laughs> this time, you're good to go. As if it didn't happen, just don't do that anymore. Like, they're so relieved and they're so happy. That's what it means to be acquitted, right? You're so happy that, that you're off the hook, right? But it's not that. Listen, it says it's the goodness, forbearance, long-suffering, and it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. When you see that not only um, am I acquitted, not only was I set free or, or off the hook, but when you see that it's because of the goodness of God and his innocence and him being substituted for what you did, that's what leads you to repentance. That would lead you to say, Lord, I, I want to be forgiven. I don't want to just be set free. I want to actually acknowledge what you've done for me. I want to ask you to forgive me for putting you in this position. You see the difference with repentance? It's not just getting off free. It's recognizing that somebody still had to pay the price. We got to ask ourselves and we got to think about other people. Have they truly repented or have they just been grateful for being set free? If you're just happy to be free, it's not the same thing as recognizing that somebody still had to pay the price. When we hear stories where the wrong person is accused of a crime and found guilty, it does something to us, right? Like, we can't believe that. That person didn't do it, but they've been accused, and now they're in jail. They're wrongfully accused. I, I took the family to see this movie, Just Mercy. If you haven't seen it, just like I told you about watching Harriet, y'all need to watch these movies. Uh, but Just Mercy is about that. It's about the wrongfully accused, people who are in prison, people who are on death row, and found to be guilty or found to be innocent. We've seen in the last probably decade DNA evidence and how many people are getting out of prison uh, because they weren't actually guilty. It makes you pause for a second and say, dang, how many people are actually innocent that are, that are in prison or even already been killed and later on found to be innocent, right? It does something to us. We, we just, it doesn't sit well with us. I think for most of us, it's something we struggle with. So I took him to see this movie, great story about guilt, great story about innocence, wrongfully accused, all that stuff. There's a lot of layers to the movie. Uh, this man was innocent of murder, but he was also guilty of adultery. You know, a lot of people, when you watch the movie, you might skip over that, and it's what I was talking about earlier, where you can be innocent in one area, but you're guilty in the next area, right? So I thought they did a good job of, of kind of showing some of that stuff. There was false testimony, and then there was conviction and repentance. There's all this stuff going on in this movie. And I thought it was a reflection of life that we're living, right? Where we're not talking about true innocence, we're just talking about degrees of guilt. So let's look at the archetype of the innocent um, as wrongfully accused. This is Isaiah 53 talking about Jesus now, um, the archetype of, of the innocent. And think about this idea of degrees of guilt, Think about wrongfully accused. Think about the difference between being uh, acquitted and saying, thank God, I'm, I don't have to go to jail, or the idea of recognizing that somebody is paying that price for you. Listen to what Isaiah 53 says about Jesus. It says, who's believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. You, you see, I can't even finish this. We're, we're going to get to verse 6, but 
what, what Isaiah 53 is telling us is you have not just been acquitted and found innocent of something you're guilty for. What it's saying is that you have been acquitted, you have been set free, but somebody else is paying the price for what you're guilty of. He was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we're healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was silent when he gets taken. Now imagine being, being convicted of a murder that you didn't commit and then you just stand up from your seat in the courthouse. You let the bailiff handcuff you. You go back to your cell. You never uh, appeal. You never tell anybody that you're innocent. You never fight your case. Think about this for a second. This archetype of the innocent is something so different and so unique. He's innocent but he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't fight for an appeal. He doesn't take it to a higher court. He's silent as he goes. Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, completely innocent. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many." And made intercession for the, for the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He's the archetype of the innocent. And he's also the only truly innocent one. He is also the only one to willingly die for the guilty. Right? So he's the archetype of the innocent. He's the first, the OG, the, the, the one that everybody's trying to model after. But in this case, he's the only one. There are no other innocent people. I thought about it for a while that even Adam and Eve, they had a few minutes of innocence. <laughs> They're the only, those are the only three human beings, Adam and Eve for a short time, and then Jesus always. There have been no other innocent people to walk this planet, not even for one minute. And then he's the only one to willingly die for the guilty. You don't see that anywhere else in history. To willingly die for the guilty and to do it silently. James 2.10 says, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. So a lot of us like to say degrees of guilt, right? We're pretty good people. We don't murder. We don't lie. We don't steal. Well, we lie, but we don't steal. Well, we steal, but we don't murder. And the Bible says that if you break one of these laws, you break them all. Romans 3.19 says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. 
What, it's, what it means is God gave us the Bible not to show us how to be good, but to show us how bad we are. We're all guilty. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Our, our, our righteousness is like filthy rags before the Lord. It's saying that you get all these laws and be like, man, I thought I was doing so good, but nope. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Amen. Then you can begin to understand why an innocent one would have to die for you once you begin to understand how guilty you are. Almost there, guys. This is John 3.12. We're so familiar with John 3.16. It's going to be in here. I'm going to read through verse 18. The Lord says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that's the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. It says so much here about guilt and about innocence. Two things about Jesus the innocent. Number one, our, our earthly experience leads us to understanding the heavenly reality, right? What we see in life, what we know about ourselves when it comes to guilt and innocence is supposed to give us a, an understanding about what's going on in the heavenly reality of salvation, right? Jesus says, I'm talking to you about earthly things, and if you don't understand that, how can I talk to you about heavenly things? If you won't even acknowledge that you are a stone-cold sinner, that you are guilty, that you are selfish, that you're a liar, that you need help, that you deserve to be in prison, that you deserve the death penalty, if you won't acknowledge that on the normal human reality level, how can I talk to you about heavenly things like a sinless, perfect, innocent one coming down and being a substitute for you? That's what verse 12 means. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is telling us, before he gets to God so loved the world, he's telling you in advance, like, let me just deal with you on an earthly thing. You're a sinner, and you know it. Why are you constantly defending yourself, trying to claim innocence when you know you're guilty? In so many different ways, in so many different areas. We have to understand and embrace our guilt if we're going to be able to understand and embrace the innocent one. If you want to see him for who he really is, you can't see him if, you're, if you are claiming your own innocence. You have to embrace your guilt. Yeah. And then you can embrace his innocence. The second thing is innocence leads to sorrow, not condemnation. If we think that we are innocent in many ways, let me ask you, how do you, how do you deal with the guilt of others? Verse 17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The difference between us and Jesus, one of the differences, there's a lot of them, is that the Lord is full of innocence. And for us, in the rare circumstances when we are innocent, uh, we want to condemn the guilty and Jesus wants to save the guilty. You see the difference in his innocence and our innocence? Like, if I find myself innocent in a situation, I will fight to the death to prove that I'm innocent and for the guilty party to be held accountable. I didn't do it. He did it. And I want him to be punished to the full extent of the law. Number one, because he did it and he deserves it. Number two, because he tried to accuse me of doing it. When we're innocent, we want others to be condemned. 
If we didn't start the fight in our marriage, we want them to take full responsibility and be accountable for the fallout. What does Jesus do? He comes as the innocent one. He says, I'm innocent. They're guilty. And what do I want to do? I don't want to condemn. I want to bless. I want to show grace. I want to show mercy. You see the archetype? You see how different his innocence is from ours? Even when we have a little bit of innocence, we jack it up. (laughs) He's the archetype. He's so different than us. So let's close with this last story where we get to see the archetype of the innocent in action. All the things we've talked about so far. Guilt, degrees of guilt, innocence, substitution, right? Him standing in our place, uh, suffering for our transgressions. Now let's see, this is Luke 23. Jesus is on the cross. And it says that there were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they were crucified, or there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and one on the left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. See it again, huh? They divided his garments and they cast lots and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged, blasting him, saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and save us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. When we talk about salvation, please, I hope that you're you're grasping what I'm talking about this morning. I said earlier that it's one thing to be acquitted. It would have been great for this guy to get down off of the cross, right, and say, look, I've been set free. I get to go even though I'm guilty. But what do you see here? He acknowledges his own guilt. He says, I'm up here and I deserve to be here. You are up here and you deserve to be here too. But he's up here and doesn't deserve to be here. He's what? He's innocent. That's how you get saved, is recognizing your guilt and his innocence. One or the other is not enough. We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. See, he can't call him Lord until he gets this guilt and innocence thing right. He gets the guilt and innocence thing right, and then he says, Lord, remember me, and Jesus says, you've done enough to be saved, because that's all it takes. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to live 100 years of doing the right thing. You don't have to get saved and then have at least five years of faithful servants. (laughs) You just got to get this thing right about your guilt and my innocence and the fact that I'm up here on this cross for you, not for me. Willingly. I was not forced to get on this cross. I came for you. So good. Today you'll be with me in paradise. It was about the sixth hour. There was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened. The veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus had cried out with a loud voice. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Redemption is about innocence 
and being substituted for guilt. I love this, this way that, that Luke ends the gospel. He's saying, like, this is the climax. This is what it's all about, is this one little story on the cross. Somebody seeing their guilt, seeing his innocence, recognizing that he is not just defending them in the sense of trying to get them off, right? That he's actually paying the price for them. And then Jesus can breathe his last. He says, I'm done. It's finished. I'm going to do the same thing that I did for him. I'm going to do it for whoever would come to me and say, I'm guilty and I want your innocence. That's been the story since that day. That was what the story was leading up to before that day. There's no such thing as a crime that goes without being paid for. I told you that earlier. Nobody, nobody gets away with anything. You either pay for it in this life or, or you pay for it in the next life. And either you pay for it or Jesus pays for it, but it's going to get paid for. Nobody's getting away with anything. That's, that's the piece that we have that surpasses understanding. You know, when kids are abused, when kids go missing. One of the things that, that constantly is on my mind is, is um, the suffering that a, that a parent goes through when a kid is kidnapped. You ever thought about that? I mean, there's so many horrific things in this world, rape, murder, all that kind of stuff, but, but to have a child kidnapped and to never see them again, can you imagine the torment that a parent goes through? You know the only peace you can have is to know that nobody gets away with anything in this life. Yeah. If you don't have Jesus, what is your answer for that? If you don't have hope in God, what is your answer for that? What is your answer for so many other horrible and horrific things? My answer is, man, I, I would never obviously want to go through something like that. And it's hard to look somebody in the face that's going through something that you haven't experienced. But you got to be able to say the same thing. Nobody gets away with anything. They're going to pay for that. And then to think about the goodness of God, to think, what if that person repents and you meet them in, in heaven? His goodness is beyond our goodness. His ways are beyond our ways. His salvation is beyond anything that we could imagine salvation could go. And he says, all are guilty. You think that the kidnapper and the rapist is bad. He says, you're just as bad. So there's only been one innocent. Isaiah, would you come? He's the archetype. And in this life, he's the only. There aren't going to be any other innocent people. When you look at the best of what we have, I mentioned my son, Nate. He's guilty. Delilah, she's beautiful. She's guilty. <laughs> Your pastor, guilty. There's only one. But guess what? In the life to come, we're going to be raised and Jesus says, I make all things new. There's going to be nothing but innocent people in heaven. Innocent people who pled guilty here on this earth. That's it. Stand with me. One day we'll be fully innocent. We'll be fully holy. We'll be fully righteous. Until that day, we're covered in his innocence. We're covered in his righteousness. We're covered by his blood. Our sins are washed away. But we know in our own hearts and in our own minds that we're still wrestling. We're still a work in progress. The archetype of the innocent in this particular case is giving us something that we get to hope for in the next life. We get to fight for it in this life and realize it in the next. This is the hope that we call an anchor for our souls. It keeps us coming back. You know, Mary said during, uh, during worship, she said, you know, if we go to that prayer vending machine and, and it doesn't give us what we want, 
We might put a little bit more effort, put another dollar in there, and if it doesn't give us what we want then, we're gonna shake it and scream at it and kick it to get what we want. And then, if it still doesn't give us what we want, we'll never go back to that vending machine again. I thought that was a, a profound analogy. What it means to be a Christian and have an anchor for our soul is, we go to God and we say, I'm tired of being guilty. <laughs> I'm tired of doing the wrong thing. I'm tired of sinning. I recognize who you are and, and, and I've asked you to help me and, and here I am again in need of a hero. Here I am again in need of salvation. But instead of staying away because we're so tired of that interaction or that exchange, we keep coming back. We're anchored to this altar. We're anchored, anchored to this space where we say, God, yet again, yes. I'm guilty. And I'm not going to stay in my guilt. I'm not going to stay in my shame. I'm not going to run from you. I'm going to come to your altar and say, here I am again. And when my family has told me this is the last time and we won't help you again, when my spouse has told me I won't be hurt by you not one more time and they've left me, when my kids have told me you were not the parent you were supposed to be and they don't talk to me, God, you're the archetype. <laughs> I keep coming to you and you keep having grace. The grace you showed for that sinner on the cross who lived his whole life, he was a murderer, the grace you had for him is the same grace you have for me time and time again. Man, if we could see that reality in ourselves here on this earth, I think we can touch heaven and see the reality of the innocent one who is our substitute, our defender. The scriptures tell us that uh, he makes intercession on our behalf, that we have an accuser that stands before the Lord constantly accusing us, but then we have Jesus constantly defending us. The real dream team. The real dream team. So why don't we pray? Bow your heads, close your eyes. If you still feel guilty, if you uh, have maybe been acquitted, maybe you've come to church or you've, you've recognized Jesus, you know, the, the scriptures paint a clear picture of who Jesus is. You come to church, you hear the words, you read the Bible, you hear prayers, and you begin to see uh, that it's true, that he's real, that he's alive, that he was on the cross. But maybe you never fully acknowledged your guilt. Recognizing that he's the savior and he's the sinless one and he's the one that all hope lies in, right, is not enough. You also have to recognize that you are a sinner. That it's about degrees of guilt and not even close to anything about innocence. The sinner said, I'm on this cross and it's just. I deserve to be here because of my deeds, but he doesn't. He's done nothing wrong. You need both of those things. So if you're here, and there's any doubt in your heart, any doubt in your mind that you haven't acknowledged your guilt, that you haven't acknowledged your sin, that you haven't really laid it out there how deep and how bad, how far and how wide your sin has run. You love Jesus and you acknowledge his goodness, but you haven't acknowledged your sin. I want to give you an opportunity to do that or, or recommit that, re-acknowledge why you need a savior and pray for you. Maybe for some to be your first time. From the grave I've been raised When I needed a savior to save me Jesus, you made a way
Thank you for listening. The Way would love you to visit our church at 451 West Lambert Road, Suite 204 in the city of Brea. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. and Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.thewaybrea.com or you can download our church app by visiting your app store and searching The Way Brea. Be blessed.